Hello and welcome to the new episode of The Film Angle. My name is Chris. And I'm Alex. We've got a big dumb blockbuster to talk about today. Um, And I think that's fair to say about pretty much every Marvel movie that's being released (laughs) recently. Um, I'm more of like the reluctant skeptic when it comes to the Marvel universe, multiverse, whatever you want to call it nowadays, Alex. You're more versed in these sort of things. Were you excited for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania? Um, so if anybody listens to the podcast already knows that I, I'm, I'm the resident Marvel fan. I'm the guy who is pretty, pretty easy to win over on, on most Marvel films. Um, but the Ant-Man films are probably the ones that I don't like the most. And I can't say I was very excited for this film. <laughs> and okay. if anything, it was the introduction of Jonathan Majors as Kang. That was kind of the exciting part, but. Yeah, I'm. I don't care for Ant Man, sure. and the trailers didn't do anything to make me feel like I should get excited for this film. So, what is it about? Is it the character himself that you're not that attached to? Because I know you obviously have a background of of reading the comics, and you're sort of an avid fan. Were you? Did you kind of come into Ant Man with that sort of idea that you weren't as big a fan of him, or was it just the way that the movies are done and they're filmed? Um, I, I, I mean, I guess like I've never been very into Ant Man and the Wasp. Like, not that I've disliked them in the comics, they're just characters that are there, they're, they're never ones that I've kind of seeked out any of their own kind of solo adventures anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but Marvel have a good track record of kind of creating films that warm you into the characters that you know less about anyway. Sure. Um, but I don't feel the Ant-Man films have really done that for me so much. I like the casting as uh, of Paul Rudd as Scott Lang. Yes. But... I mean, Scott Lang's not the main Ant-Man, really, in the comics. It might be now, but uh, originally it's Michael Douglas's character, Hank Pym. Who right, is, okay. He's, he's the, he is the Ant-Man. He's not an old man in most of the comics. He's just like a... Interesting why they dude. chose to pick Michael Douglas as that character, though. But, you know, but you couldn't have Michael Douglas doing all these things now. People would, you know, not take the brand as seriously. I, I can understand why they probably shifted to Paul Rudd. And Paul Rudd's a really, like charismatic presence like i enjoy him in the movie i think he is one of the stronger things of the ant-man franchise is his sort of you know out of costume charisma and his sort of um ne'er-do-well sort of like free-flowing attitude where nothing sort of like bothers him and everything is kind of overcomable um yeah yeah and i think there's more comedy with his character as like an ex-con and I think when Edgar Wright was originally attached to direct the Ant-Man film, mm-hmm. that's probably why he went down that route. Yes. And maybe maybe Marvel had a hand in that because you were about to have, you know, Hank Pym is just another scientist character who yeah. turns into a superhero kind of thing. So, like, we've had a few of those in the Marvel films already. Um, he's actually a, a wife beater in the comics as well. Oh, okay. So that's kind of like, that's a very likable trait in the character. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so... Uh, I mean, they've never really delved into that dark side of him too much. I think he's got a bit of a short temper in the first Ant-Man film. Or is it the second? I can't remember. Okay. Uh, that's kind of yes. completely disregarded in Quantumania, as we'll talk about coming up. Well, the kind of fear is that I I, um, I haven't had a strong relationship with Ant-Man. Um, the first movie I watched a few years ago, and then I actually rewatched it a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this, and then i never seen Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, before Quantumania. So I did a bit of homework before catching up with this movie. Um, the first movie, like, the character of Pym is, you're right, he's a bit cranky, but they kind of 
transition him into like the cranky one-liner guy who has a little bit of a love-hate relationship with Scott Lyme. And um, I actually think that's kind of one of the stronger things in the franchise. I think him, him and um, Paul Rudd really bounce off each other really, really well. And I think the second and third, this movie, um, particularly that's the kind of stronger elements. I think Ant-Man ultimately is at its best when the stakes are really low and the comedy is just kind of in full flow. And that's not... I, a compliment I usually give to most Marvel movies, usually more recently, like Thor, Love and Thunder, that was to its detriment where that just felt like, you know, um, a himbo clown just sort of prancing for the universe um, with no sort of care or stakes involved. Where Ant-Man, where the character is kind of inherently silly um, and the stakes are low because you're literally in a a quantum realm, you know, he, he, he is we're meant to feel like this uh this story is gargantuan but in fact this is the smallest story we've seen in marvel to date but i i think that's really well leaned on to and i i kind of like the movies for that reason yeah i think that's completely fair i think a lot of people saw the first ant-man in particular as a bit of a palate cleanser after the avengers film uh you know going back to a slightly smaller story and it's a little bit more whimsical and I, I, I have no problem with that. I, I kind of like that Marvel is maybe not, tr- or at least previously was not trying to be as coherent and just tell kind of singular stories. Obviously, that seems yeah. to have kind of been pushed aside now. I just, you know, I, I wanted a bit of a, I wanted a bit of a palate cleanser, I think, after Endgame. And maybe we got a bit of that, but Marvel have been <laughs> struggling with their results recently. Uh, you know, for every Wakanda Forever, there's a Thor Love and Thunder, and uh, their films don't seem to be hitting as hard. And 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 you know me, I was I was a big fan of Wakanda Forever. I might have I might have overpraised it, but um, I I thought that was one of their more decent films in recent memory. Uh, and then and then Quantum Mania came out and uh, just kind of sucked all the energy I had <laughs> for Marvel yeah. again. Well, the thing is, I think what they're really struggling with at the minute is that they are teasing bigger things ahead, but we have no grip on what that could be. It feels like we're, these big movies are part of something extra, but we just can't get a grip on what it is. And it feels like a, we're in a moment of misdirection or or just not knowing where we're going to go next. And we're just producing content for the sake of content. Mm. Um, I just kind of, you know what? I kind of went into this movie thinking that it was probably going to be one of the worst Marvel movies to date. Um, the praise was very lacking. I think this is one of the lowest reviewed by critics for all the Marvel movies, actually, <laughs> apart from maybe Iron Man 2, which I think you know everybody kind of <laughs> agrees isn't one of the strongest ones. But I kind of came in here with low expectations, and I actually kind of came out kind of enjoying this movie. I, I don't think it's as good as Ant-Man and the Wasp, but I think it's better than the first Ant-Man movie. And... Yeah, I, I know you don't agree with me, Alex, on this. Maybe. I, I mean, I don't. I think. I think you're right. I think you're right about Ant Man and the Wasp. Um, I think I came out of Ant Man and the Wasp enjoying it, but then, mm. you know, your 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 thoughts on these films sometimes kind of degrade a bit over time, and and I, I haven't kind of looked back at Ant Man and the Wasp fondly. Um, yeah, it's it's worth revisiting. I think the stakes in Ant Man and the Wasp are the lowest. The pull point of that movie is the discovery, rediscovering um, of the mother, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, um, that that's the whole kind of plot of the movie. We want to find her and get her back from the quantum realm, 
there's signs that she might still be alive. And it's a very small sort of insular story. And the rest of the movie is just a full blown comedy. It's kind of a lot for me. It was laugh a minute. I kind of, and that's really rare for a Marvel film for me. I kind of went along for the ride. I really enjoyed the Louise character. I was so sad that he was missing from this movie because he was he was the glue of the first two Ant-Man movies, keeping it together. Um, the first Ant-Man movie is just kind of really bland. It's not even really shot, interestingly. It makes you like yearn for the version we would have got for from um, Edgar Wright if he had managed to pull the project together. And it felt a bit more of like a like a safe and secure steel movie, which is, you know, nobody really wants that, especially as we've seen so many Marvel movies now. And if you're going back to Ant-Man now, that can be a little bit boring. And well, I've just seen this movie a hundred times over. Um, Quantumania is so different because it is wall-to-wall insane. <laughs> it is a mental movie. It is kind of like a Rick and Morty episode mixed with Star Trek, mixed with Star Wars. Um, it is kind of, it, it's going for it. And is it? <laughs> I, I thought it's, it had a charming, it had a charming Saturday morning cartoon sort of world building aspect to it. There was loads of really weird humanoids. Um, gloopy organisms the performances are kind of mostly fun and good i mean bill murray comes into it at one point and you're like oh buckle up here we're gonna have some fun one-liners but then it's like oh do you even know what movie you're in dude it's like there's no sort of the the one-liners that he's filling out it doesn't feel like he even knows what he's saying and it doesn't they just kind of fall flat but michael douglas he pulls out the bag i think he's so funny again in this i think he's he again was the strongest part of the movie for me. Um, what, what did you think about his performance? Yeah, I, I did like Michael Douglas. Um, it is very much just kind of the one-liners. Um, for him, he doesn't get as much to do here. He's just a guy who likes ants. Which is an, <laughs> he likes ants, yeah, that's right. His, his kind of character type is kind of just like stripped down to the very basic elements in this film. Um, I kind of want to like you. You you say about this being like very much like a Rick and Morty episode, a lot of world building and stuff like that. I um, although I appreciate the kind of crazy designs and I mean maybe it's worth saying as well for the audience that don't um, that haven't seen it. You know this is this is Ant Man, uh, Scott Lang, his daughter, his girlfriend Hope, who's the Wasp. Hank, his mentor, and uh, his his wife, who's just come back from the quantum realm, all being sucked back into the quantum realm, only to mm-hmm. find that, uh, you know, Hope has been essentially kind of downplaying what the quantum realm is. It is this kind of micro-universe, and it is ruled by a nefarious kind of conqueror called Kang, and if he was to regain full power he will essentially uh, escape the quantum realm and go on to destroy universes. Spoilers will follow for anybody worried about Mm. this. But I didn't like the quantum realm. And I didn't like... It was just... It felt (laughs) like everything... I like... All right. So I like the designs. (laughs) I like all the kind of weirdness going on. That's great. I always think, like, comics are weird and the film should represent this. But it felt like everything was just thrown at the screen with not, not much thought. And I don't yeah. think the world building was particularly good. Like, is this when they say this is a universe? Are we talking like a planetary universe? Like, are there civilizations of broccoli head people? Are there civilizations <laughs> of 
um, you know, gloopy aliens that like holes. Um, yeah. Like, and, and also, why are some? Why do some people look human? And yeah, they're not yeah. human. But they, I, I, I just the rules, the rules of the quantum realm don't make any sense to me. And I don't think there was any thought into trying to make them make sense. It was just like, oh, look, we're we're all quirky, and it looks like state yeah. artwork, and, and it's like, it's it's not. I've wanted Marvel to to really embrace the weirdness side of comics and and kind of really take us down a different route. Than, I think you got that. I think you got the weirdness here. We got the weirdness in the visuals, but we we just didn't get anything better in the story. Like the story needs to hold up the visuals, and it's still a very generic story. And uh, they, they disregard any kind of character development from the previous films. Like it was fun to see Hope come back in Ant Man and the Wasp, and to see what is next for her story would have been yeah. really interesting, but she's very much a sidelined here. Yeah. hundred percent. And you have this interesting relationship where Paul Rudd has lost all this time with his daughter because of the events of Endgame, And they, they're kind of at odds with the fact that he's not as motivated as being a hero, despite saving the world. I think that gives him a pass personally. He can, he doesn't have to care so much anymore. He's done the mm. job. And they're at odds with each other about that, but that doesn't really come into anything. And then you have Evangeline Lilly uh, playing Hope, and she hasn't seen her mother in so long. And there's a dynamic there that could have been played out that kind of parallels what Scott Lang is going through with his daughter, but they never really do any of that. And yeah, Michelle, Michelle Pfeiffer just becomes this guide in this universe. Yes. And she holds on to so much information for no reason. She's constantly saying, like, oh, I, I should have told you this before. And then, like, hours pass and they're still traveling through the quantum yeah. realm. And she hasn't told <laughs> them, like, who Kang is. Like, all this information just because, you know, we, the audience, need to be revealed it at some point. Um, it's, it's a shame for Pfeiffer, isn't it? Because oh, I don't I don't think it's a fault of her own. I think she's, you know, I think she's always been an interesting actress. But she's held ransom to the expository dialogue. And she is, like you said, she is being reduced to tour guide status and she's not given every, every character gets to be funny, but she doesn't get the chance to be. And, and and we need to be connected to her. She's the character that we've been looking forward to coming back. She's, she's the, the whole plot device of the last movie. So we're going to kind of get why she was so special and we've got to understand the relationship between her and her daughter. Um, yeah. There is, yeah, you're really right. There's emotional stakes that were, you know, lost because of that. Yeah, absolutely. And it felt like anything that they were building up to in the last two films. And again, like, don't get me wrong, I'm not mad because I didn't particularly enjoy the last two films either. But it just felt like we were compl- everything was disregarded to have this kind of quirky look at the quantum realm, which essentially was just all these actors in front of a green screen. And it looked awful. It looked oh. really, really bad. The, the scene where all of a sudden it cuts to, like, um, Michelle Pfeiffer and uh, Michael Douglas and Evangeline Lilly like, being encountered by these rebels yeah. in this open desert space. You can see the feathering on their, like, on their heads where it's kind of like not been right. melded into the, into the world so much. Everything just feels so flat. I, I don't know. I, I was really surprised. I actually thought it was going to look a lot worse. I thought like uh, the last couple of entries looked a lot, you know, I think th- at least I could see this movie Wakanda forever. The action scenes were like almost pitch black. I, I you know, I couldn't see what was going on. I thought the the vo- use of the volume in the last previous films um, was really, really distracting. I could always see the foreground and where the foreground ends and the screen meets. 
I didn't feel like I saw it that bad in this movie. But then again, I didn't see this movie in IMAX like I did previously. And I could really see the seams then. So maybe if I saw an IMAX, I would have really like noticed all the all the hiccups. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe I didn't see it in IMAX. Maybe we saw different films. I thought I could see the seams a lot. I felt like everything just felt like this flat flat world <laughs> everybody was just stood in front of green screens there was there was no there was no depth and obviously that is something that you have to overcome when you're working with green screens and as we know sure. the marvel VF- vfx guys are kind of like completely overworked at the moment yeah there's no got enough time to complete these things and i think this is where it was the most obvious that they didn't have the time to perfect what was going on on screen and it felt like this film was like oh we can you know we can just shoot this in a warehouse on a green screen it'll be easy it's fine like we don't have to spend 250 million on it we only spend 150 million but that makes me argue as well when you've got 150 million to tell any story you want to tell yeah sure this is the story you want to tell it's rubbish alex is mad he is furious oh, i just think like wasted a an entry of, of an, another interesting character we could have seen instead, you know? Or an, an interesting story. You got Modoc. All right, I will give him Modoc because I, even though... It's very weird with Modoc. okay? It's very weird. I I like the fact that Modoc's in it. I like the fact that he looks like Modoc from the comics. I can't tell like whether it's... A thumb. <laughs> I can't tell whether it's bad CGI or it's just uncanny because some things just don't both. translate well it's from both. comics to screen. <laughs> I love the fact that Modoc's in it though, and I will I will say I think he is one of my favorite parts. Because it's just such a whiplash from the rest of the movie you've been seeing. I mean, even though the rest of the movie's been so wacky and, you know, whimsical, you still you just get this whiplash of this character turning up and it's really you know, I didn't expect it at all because, you know, I d I didn't know what to expect coming in this movie, but um yeah, it was it was funny. I mean, I thought the the scenes were 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 really really good. They were good, but they it did feel slightly jarring to some of the stuff. Like tonally, this film's a little all over the place because I think it wants to be wacky, but it also wants to be really like dark and serious and really show you how much of a formidable villain that Kang is. And yeah. what do we think about kind of him? Clash against each other. Um, yeah, I think Jonathan Majors did a really good job. I like Kang. Uh, did they make him formidable? I don't know, because at the end of the day, he's just like his weakness is just a really big dude kicking him in the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> like an ants. An ants. An ants. Um, so is you know, if this is the guy that's gonna, you know, take on the mantle of, of Thanos and um I, I think he was promising at the beginning of the movie when we kind of get the tease of him and not knowing exactly what's going on, the mechanician mechanicians kind of going on in his brain. I think he does the quiet seriousness very, very well. And then yes. once it gets a little bit louder and the third act big, sort of penetrating the shield headquarters, um, you know, video game sort of final boss battle. I think he then becomes a little bit more um, larger than life and a little bit more hammy. Um, yes. which and the, which is to service to him, I think he's really, I think he's such a, a promising actor. I think we've seen him in, in movies like the the, the last uh, Black Man in San Francisco. He he was incredible in, um, yeah. and I think people are really really excited for it. I think there's still promise, but he's pigeonholed with a script. I think that makes him have to be loud and and raspy, and it kind of just loses that seriousness and edge that he had at the first half of the movie. 
yeah, it, it he's not made a. I wouldn't say like he's made the the biggest impact on the Marvel universe just yet. Like mm-hmm. I like I liked him, and I'm interested to see where it goes. But I can't imagine that general audiences are going to leave here being like, oh, this is the next Avengers level threat. Um, no, because we've already seen him being beat. Yes, by by Ant Man of all people. <laughs> yeah, and the 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 movie does its best by trying to make it a bit more ominous and sort of scary and what we've got to look forward to by having the end credits, having him show up in, you know, his other versions, thousands of them. So uh, the only thing that we're going to get next time is, is a higher volume of Kang. That's our sort of, you know, and, but we've already seen him be defeated. So there's, the stakes aren't high and I don't, we don't know to what end he wants to destroy the multiverses, the lateral universes, whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've seen it done before. I think, are, are we tired of big villains wanting to destroy things? Is that enough for us? Can we not go back Maybe. to the smaller stories where we got a Spider-Man 2, where we get a Doc Ock? He just really wants to, you know, he wants to achieve a scientific, he wants to save his wife. He wants to do something small and like, that's more personable and we can, we can latch onto that easier. You know, yeah. I think we need to go back to that type of storytelling. And I think that's what people really are looking for. Yeah, absolutely. We want to go street level with Spider-Man and, and, and Daredevil and, and all those kind of guys. Like that's, mm. that's where I prefer my Marvel stories. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I guess like the, you, the one good thing you could say about Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is the fact that it still feels like a very much a standalone film, despite it setting up Kang. Like there's still a beginning, middle and end to this. Um, where you know Kang has been defeated, potentially dead, probably not, and and there's a resolution to the story. I don't feel like there was any resolution to any character arcs. I feel like that that nothing really went anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know if you heard, but the ending of this film was completely reshot only a few months ago. Um, oh right, okay. So uh, I mean, I don't know how accurate this is, but it definitely felt like potentially this is where we were leading. Is that at the end? Ant-Man and the Wasp were going to be trapped in the quantum realm. Uh, you know, they'd sacrificed themselves essentially to save the other characters and they were going to be trapped there. Definitely felt like that's potentially where we we're going. Yeah. All of a sudden, like a portal opens behind them and they're like, oh, off we go. I hated the end of this film because it just treated it so strangely. Um, you know, you had um, Scott Lang walking around the city doing his usual stuff, being like, ah, <laughs> yeah. we saved the day. Ha ha ha. Or did we? Oh, never mind. I don't imagine we'll hear from that guy again. Ha ha ha. Yeah, yeah. It's such a weird, I don't know, it's such a weird, bland way. And, and maybe it's winking at the audience, but it just felt like it was treating us like idiots. I'm not really sure. Just didn't like the ending either. Didn't like any of it. That's a. I like, I like Paul Rudd. That's I it. like Paul Rudd. Yeah, he, he's great. I think no matter what, Alex, though, they're, if they release another Ant-Man next year, you'll be there day one as well. <laughs> That's the stupid thing, isn't it? It's the stupid thing where Marvel have trapped me. I, I've seen like every Marvel film in the cinema, and I, 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 would, str- I would struggle not to see the, the next one in the cinema because I feel like, I don't know, they suck so much money at me. It's such a, such a well, Marvel shell. We'll see going forward. There's only so much goodwill you can take. Can they do that for years and years and years, producing mediocre content? And then fear out their audience. We'll see. Well, there's there's a lot of legs in this thing, obviously. The latest thing is that with um who who's the new who's the new CEO of Disney and uh, and he used to be the CEO of Disney. It's Bob 
Shapek or is it Bob Iger? Bob Iger, that's right. He's the new CEO, right? Yeah, he's returned after the last right. CEO kind of messed everything up. Yes, pretty much. And I think he's come in and he's said now, like, we need to slow these things down. So they're already saying they've already pushed a couple films this year. So the Marvels is going to be coming out November instead of July. And they're slowing down on the TV production. So originally it was going to be like three or four TV shows this year. Apparently now there's only going to be two, which is going to be Secret Invasion and Loki. Mm-hmm. And they're delaying everything. So they actually have time to kind of make it the best version of what it is. So potentially the Marvel Universe is going to get better going forward. <laughs> because right. like I think even in Wakanda Forever, which I really enjoyed... <laughs> That final battle scene, you know, you again, you could see the seams. And it suffered, yeah. It did not stand up to... Like, the rest of the film I thought looked really good. I know you thought it was too dark. I thought it looked really good. Um, but the the that those kind of final scenes out in the water just don't hold up. And I think slowing things down for a bit might be the best way forward for these films. I have one last point, which I didn't get to make, but it also makes me upset. Can I talk about this, Chris? You Will you allow it. me to rant for another minute? That's all right. This film's called Ant-Man and the Wasp. The Wasp yeah. has nothing to do in this film. She is <laughs> yeah, we were, yeah, we said character. it already. Yeah, she's, she's, she's sidelined in this movie for sure. She's a supporting character in Ant-Man and the Wasp as well, I feel like. They've never truly given her main character status, I don't think. Sure, she is the, she is the love interest who can kick, kick butt a little bit. That's kind I, of her character, yeah. I forgot until the end of this film where uh, Scott and Hope kiss. I forgot they were in a relationship. Yeah, and they are they are separated for the majority of the film too. Yeah. I absolutely forgot. And yeah. Hope has nothing to do. She has no character arc. The fact that they put her in the title, which I know they have to because they can't really go back on it after the last one, is kind of rubbish. They should have given... You know, like Paul Rudd is the main character of this film. No doubt. Yes. There's no doubt about that. I think she has a smaller role in this movie than she did even in the first or second movie. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. As you can uh, see, Quantum Mania, I wasn't... I he's, not ha- he's not a happy chap. I, I thought well, it was I fine. I, I thought it was like a good breathing space between a palate cleanser. I thought it was kind of fun, distracting, not overly... I just... I, I, I don't know. It's a headspace thing, isn't it? I, it depends mm-hmm. where you are, this franchise. I distance myself enough from it um, for periodically that I can come in and kind of see it for what it is. Um, I thought the characters were mostly charming. I I did enjoy the the zany world building this time around. And yeah, it's not perfect. It's not going to stick a, a lot around in my memory. I'm probably not going to rewatch it, but for what it was for a Saturday afternoon at the cinema, it's 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 a pretty fun distraction. That's fair. I guess, you know, there's fun to be had. I just I don't know. Maybe watching too many of these BFI films, Chris. And <laughs> your standards are way, way, way too high. Yeah. When you watch <laughs> a real film and then you see 150 million spent on this, you're like, what? <laughs> yeah, what you can't achieve. Well, that's a pretty good segue on to actually talking about the movies that we caught up with on the BFI list, right, Alex? If anybody's wondering, I think we, we we skipped a couple of entries because we've already seen them. I don't think we mentioned that last week. Like The Shining was on there. Um, I know Parasite has been on there. We've seen these films. Uh, they're both really great films and we don't need to talk about them. So we're mm-hmm. only watching The Blind Spots. That Which is most of the list still. So it's not Which like we're skipping over a lot. <laughs> no, we're not skipping over <laughs> those. 
Yeah, so that leads us into uh, 1953's The Earrings of Madame De. Try saying that three times when you're really drunk. Um, this is a movie I kind of had, I knew nothing about. This is directed by Max Offul. Is that Offul? Offuls? Uh, yeah, I don't really know how to say his name, but we'll go for it. Wonder, yeah. Offuls. Um, it kind of, it centers around, it's set in France in the late 19th century. It is worth saying that this this movie is in French as well. Um, it centers around the wife of a wealthy general. She is called Countess uh, Louise, who sells her earrings um, that her husband gave her, give to her on their wedding night and uh, to pay off some secret debts that she's got going on behind his back. Um, she then kind of claims to him that she's lost them during an opera one night and it sets off um, a sort of cataclysm of events that uh, her lies have led to. So there is another love interest. Her earrings are then found um, at a marketplace in, is it in Turkey, in Istanbul? Yes, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And this guy discovers the earrings there at, the, at a shop window. He uh, he buys them and uh, he comes back to Paris and he forms a coincidental connection with the Countess uh, at a sort of passing trains moment. And uh, yeah, it starts off. The husband, in the meantime, he is seeing, he kind of knows that there's something going on. The guy that she sold the earrings to has came to the Count um, the general and has said that the wife has sold them to him and he wanted him to know and so the husband secretly knows about this and he's on the trail but he's not letting the wife know about it and everybody has their own little story going on here everybody has their own little agenda and yeah. uh, it, it just see you're just seeing things kind of map out and it gets cringier and cringier because you know where it's going and things are getting prolonged and the stakes are getting higher um, well, I think that's the best thing about the film, isn't it? Is like it it doesn't hide anything from the audience. The audience are the only people in the know of everything going on in this film. Yes, the characters right. themselves only have little pieces of the story. We as an audience have it all, and that almost makes it more entertaining for us knowing because we can see both characters thinking in different ways on the screen at the same time. That was my favorite element of the film, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think what this movie does really, really interestingly, that kind of new movie does, is that there we've got three principal characters, but they're like the own heroes in their own story, right? Yes. It's like yeah. they all know something and we're with them, but they think they're doing the right thing in their mind. There is no sort of villain. We no. don't demonize a husband. We don't demonize a wife. They're all sort of flawed people kind of going on their journey we can see why he's angry we can see why she's she feels isolated in her relationship with him it's kind of loveless but the jealousy is forming uh it's just so fun to watch this thing pan out and whenever she has this connection with this um with the other guy the baron fabrizio he is these moments in these beautiful dance halls where they're just connecting the camera that's something to mention in this movie. Mm-hmm. For a movie from the 50s, the camera is always sweeping, always in movement, always in flow. Um, it's beautiful to look at. So what did you think of the performances? I thought um, particularly Charles Boyer as the, the general Andre. I thought he was a standout in this movie. I think his conniving sort of one up on the wife the whole time, always ahead of her without her knowing and kind of orchestrating um everything was i thought he was fantastic in this i really enjoyed his scenes 
Yeah, I thought he was great as well. He's the one that they kind of they kind of edge towards making him a, him a villain at sort times, of, but yes. they don't they don't fully commit to it. Um, yeah, I think I think just this interesting relationship that's um, you know that that's got all these different elements going on, and there's like lying and deceit and and, and gaslighting essentially mm. uh, all this stuff going on I, I really enjoyed that that element of the film um not to i'm gonna have my credentials sh- stripped here but uh, <laughs> it just felt like an episode of love island it was great <laughs> <laughs> well I, I did not think about that comparison at all <laughs> do, do you explain <laughs> maybe i'll be watching too much love Island. you know when, I, when, I, when somebody, somebody's coupled up and then like somebody else comes in and it, it turns their head and and maybe they don't want to tell the other person just how much they feel about the other person. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know, a, you know, lies and deceit. I, maybe you know, been watching too much Love Island. Uh, maybe I should have my cine- cinephile credentials revoked. I'm sure Falmouth University are trying to strip me of my degree uh, as we speak. <laughs> but yeah, I'm uh, the first and only ever person to compare the earrings of Madame de to Love Island. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. But you know, all jokes aside. Um, just very, I re- I really liked it. I really liked, like you said, uh, uh, sweeping cameras, this lavish lifestyles. Um, I think I, I think it's so full of these really thought provoking quotes. I think it's a very quotable movie. There was like every sort of saying, there was something that was said by a character that was kind of profound. That was like, oh, I need to remember that. Um, there's a, there's a moment where the contest is sort of being interrogated um, by by Fabrizio. And she says, it's when we have the most to say that we can't speak. And I thought that's so that's so true. And I think this is kind of what's going on with all these characters is that they all they it's it's a, such a mannered time period where everything these sort of uh, adulterating sort of um, relationships and and how they especially in this aristocracy, the, the status of these people is very frowned upon and they have to do everything very secretly. It promotes secretive behavior. Mm. And everybody has to keep their emotions to themselves. She's she's sort of just being kind of crushed by the pressure of the lifestyle that she lives in. She's, I, it's quite hard. I I couldn't register whether to be sympathetic to her or not. She seems to be somebody who's at the end of her tether, has been for some time. And we come in at the beginning of the story where um, she's kind of been a victim to her relationship, but sort of self-inflicted in her own desires too. It's all about yeah, kind of giving into your lifestyle. Oh, 100%. Yes. Yes. And she can't, you know, we don't know why she loses the money. I assume she, she's we, the first opening shot of the movie is actually quite interesting because it's just a tracking shot of her hand as mm. it follows all her lavish dresses and nothing looks the same. The last, her dressing table is ornate, all this jewelry. And then we pan to the earrings. Um, so it's somebody who is materialistic, but very, very emotional. I mean, she's at odds of herself. And I, I think that's what's interesting about people who, who live these lavish lifestyles who are such high status is that they are satisfied to a degree of their possessions, but they're never emotionally satisfied. And that, that's true with a lot of movies we've seen. I think Babylon was kind of similar that we talked about recently. It's uh, excess can go so far, but never takes you the whole way and whenever someone new and exciting comes along it turns your head um so yeah like an episode of love island like an episode of yeah i basically just just (laughs) described love island um (laughs) but it's hard like you 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 have to feel for it how can you not be swooned by by the italian um 
Baron Fabrizio. He is such a, a more of a romantic. He is not as showy. He's more gentle in his approach. The the general is obviously you know more obsessed with. There's a war going on in the background. Um, there you know he's more concerned with that, and his his interactions with his wife are more sort of. Um, standard and practice worthy. So whenever they go to bed, they sleep in opposite beds in different rooms. You know, that's that's something. So you can't blame her for wanting more too. She's got it all, but she hasn't. Yes, yeah. It's it's almost like a business relationship at the end of the at the end of the day. It's a it's a payoff. He he gets the he gets the beautiful wife, she gets the lavish lifestyle but they do their own things in the meantime and neither one of them are like overly upset but there's definitely some jealousy that arises and and that's kind of where this film uh meets at the end in in a mm. pretty tragic ending would you say chris oh very tragic and I, yeah i i think the the strength of this movie is its score i mean it uses music by by oscar strauss um, which are these swooning strings and orchestras that really like marry well with the camera, and uh, the the emotion can be very overwhelming. And I think it mirrors the characters really well too, and adds to the tragedy at the end of the movie. Hundred percent. I I loved it. I I thought it was you know it was exactly the type of movie I would expect on a list like this. I thought it was very very. Um, it almost felt like a, a very prestige golden era Hollywood movie with a French overcoat on it. Yeah. Um. Which is exactly in my wheelhouse, and I really, I, I found it really fun in the dynamics. And going back to my first point, I just really appreciated that nobody here was black and white. That all three characters were the hero in their own story, and we could follow them individually and episodically, and feel neutral about them all. And we were just kind of watching the dynamic and how the how this first small small little incident really kind of unfolded into something really big. And uh, like you say, tragic at the end. Chris, the whole film was black and white, mate. Whole film. <laughs> oh, I missed that part. Stupid <laughs> <laughs> uh, jokes. Maybe I'll cut that. I don't think I, I I I don't think I loved it as much as you did when I finished it. But the more I think about this film, I really liked it. I really liked it. I don't think it kind of um, swept me up in it as much as maybe it did you. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, and the more I think about it, the more it's only kind of gone higher in my estimation. So yeah, it's one of those films that's kind of sat with me for a bit. And the more I think about it, the more I like it. Uh, uh, very much an enjoyable film. And, um, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Fantastic. The last movie we've got to talk about, we have, we've got two BFIs to talk about today. Mm-hmm. This was, I seen this movie a couple of months ago, just by coincidence before we even caught up you know, proposed to do this list together. Um, and you caught up with it uh, earlier in the week. And yes. that is Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express. Wong Kar Wai um, is, a, is a guy, a very famous Hong Kong filmmaker. He, we really, really wanted to um, catch up on and kind of wanted to be completionist anyway, because he is so well regarded in cinema. You know, his work was even referenced in the recent, Oscar Best Picture nominee, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Um, there's sections of the whole movie that are dedicated to how his movies look. And that's the most important thing in his movies. They're never very plot-driven. Um, they're usually a bit more about music, um, the cinematic language of the camera, and the motion, and how you can use 
um, visuals to really tell a story and the mood of a character. Mm. Yes. His films aren't set in reality, in a way. They're no. not. They're, they're a lot more kind of heightened emotionally. Very, yes. And nostalgic, and they they romanticize a time period in Hong Kong. You know, um, it's hard not to fall in love with the city um, it, when, when it's depicted this way in the 90s with its beautiful grains and, and the stutter frames and people going past. Everybody looks amazing. <laughs> Everybody's like, everybody looks so ripped or wearing beautiful extravagant, extravagant clothes. The neon lit city um, has this Blade Runner sort of as quality to it all the time where it's a dystopian but in the now yes and and obviously the political kind of changing of the guards this is a very western influenced hong kong and obviously sure. now we're seeing that change and i think when you watch a movie like this now um with everything that's going on in hong kong and you know and how you know the turmoil going on there the last few years it's very nostalgic to watch a movie like this and see when Hong Kong was at its sort of at its height. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, that being said, <laughs> and I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs> no, 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 no. I know where you're going with this. Please, please, Al. God, man, am I? I hate that man. <laughs> I compared earrings of Madame De to, to Love Island. Um, maybe this isn't my episode, and I didn't love Chunking Express. Okay, that yeah. I, you know what you know what I think. Apart from I think earrings of Madame De, I do not get why you wouldn't love it. I think that movie is great. I Ant Man totally get. Yeah, Chuck Express. I can kind of get why you don't like it too. I think it is. It appeals to a certain type of person. Um, it's it, it's not very plot heavy, and it takes a no. while to get into. It's do you know what it is? It's I. There's a lot of hype around this film. There is. I've, I've heard about this film a lot. I've yes. wanted to see it for a while, never got around to it, and this was a good time to like force myself to watch it. And I think that there there was a time where maybe I would have loved this film, maybe. I'm I'm not sure. I my problem was is that the first story was not my favorite of so the, the film is set in two halves. They both follow police officers who are basically hopeless romantics. Sure. The first story of the police officer who has been in a relationship that has now failed and he is kind of mourning that relationship and basically is just trying to find love with any kind of woman he can. Yeah. Uh, he falls in love with a woman who he doesn't know is involved in basically some underground drug trafficking and yes. she's on the run. From... She wears a trench coat and she and sunglasses and a wig and it's very, very mysterious. Yeah, she basically pulled straight out of like a pulpy gangster movie, mm -hmm. and like th those elements are great. Those kind of very stylized elements are, are great. Um, but his character, I just couldn't get on board with this kind of hopeless romantic that buying pineapples like... every day. He didn't like just... pineapples. He's. I don't know if the film wants you to be sympathetic towards him, but I just saw him as kind of pathetic and this idea of like this kind of poetry of of his kind of narration just just didn't work for me and I, I didn't I didn't care for him at all again I don't know if that's the point but not caring for either of these characters not caring for their relationship not caring for what he was going through 
took me out of the film and then the second story had to kind of like pick me up a little bit mm-hmm. to to keep me involved and the second story follows a police officer who it's almost like roles reversed there's a woman at a cafe which is kind of the center point of the film in terms of a setting yeah and she she falls in love with him more than he falls in love with her played by played by Faye Warren she falls in love with him more than he falls in love with her Mm-hmm. and through circumstances ends up getting the keys to his apartment and basically goes into his apartment every day and, and cleans it and, yes. and kind of perfects it until until he kind of figures it out. And then there's a whole story with um, a flight attendant and, and all kinds of stuff going on. Yeah, I mean, it was fine. It was fine. Just the, the hopeless romantic nature of it um, just didn't sit well with me. I didn't find a lot of the characters sympathetic. Um, which is a shame because I love Tony Leon and he's obviously our second police officer. Yes. Uh, Yeah. I I think it's easier to be on board with that character more because he is a victim of a failed relationship. um, That wasn't his fault. And I think, you know, I think the movie is in love with Faye Wan. Um, the you know it's so focused on her and her sort of distract oh, she's distracted from the the things that probably matter in life she's just sort of this sort of creature who wants to exist and dance to california dreaming every day um and distract a herself lot, a lot a lot there's a lot of california dreaming a lot yeah, of california turn, dreaming you might, you might need to turn your tv down at these things too because it's blasting um but but that's the thing i think one Karwai is never it sounds like a bad movie when I say it, but he is never super interested in the characters. Um, he's more obsessed with infatuation and how this, the language of cinema complements infatuation. And sometimes infatuation comes from not really a place of substance. It comes from just purely seeing somebody who catches your eye mm. and um, and then getting a crush in your head like we do as children. We kind of, we obsess and we wonder how their lives, what their lives are out of their normal daily stance, and uh, we we build up these sort of pictures in our mind of what who they are without actually even knowing them. There's a this movie is kind of just about yearning, mm-hmm. I think more than anything. It's nostalgic and everything. I mean, there's Coca Cola signs everywhere. Um, the, you know all this pop pop culture iconography. The music is so symbolic of the 90s. You got, you know, um, uh, Faye Wan, who acts in the movie, also does a cover of um, of the Cranberries uh, Dreams song, yes, which yeah. is beautiful. I would prefer to hear, hear that more, I think, than California Dreamers. So yeah, because it's so beautiful, that, isn't it? And, I, and yeah. that, that mirrors the yearning side of the movie mm. way, way more. And I think the sort of her going to the apartment every day and playing almost like, it's almost like children playing tricks on each other when you flirt mm. with somebody and he 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 knows the whole time he's just kind of playing along with it too and i i thought that was kind of that was kind of cute it's these people who aren't kind of living in reality but he's he's not he's not interested in 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 the characters sort of you know the black and white of why they pursue things it's just more about the emotion and hypnotic nature of 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 lust and and cinema itself and sometimes that's enough i mean it's one of those movies when it ended um i thought that's really good and then weeks later i just kept thinking about it especially its musical moments it just kind of kept looping in my mind and there's just something about his work that is so different from any other filmmaker out there and very influential um it's hard not to fall in love with it sometimes Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I, I think... It, no, yeah. I, I, 
I, I'm in the minority here. I, you know, I've checked Letterbox. I, I don't know what I'm missing that other people have connected to this film. Maybe it was just the time, the place, the mood. I don't know, but I just wasn't. I just wasn't swept up by it, and I didn't didn't buy into this kind of romanticism idea of it all. Um, yeah, I just I thought the first character was just a bit of an incel, and uh... <laughs> <laughs> I I think that we. We don't get enough time, perhaps, maybe with him. Um, yeah, that, is... the, the first story is very short compared to the second half yeah. of the film. Well, this is the second half. It's like the three quarters of the film is the second story, essentially. I haven't seen every one Cor Wai film yet. Um, I've kind of been exploring his earlier work, kind of building up to this. And in those movies I have seen so far, that tends to be the thing. He never really focuses on one character. They're usually quite episodic. And he focuses mm. on, a, on a myriad of people and one or two tend to kind of be left to the side or complement or kind of an appetizer to the main story. Yes. Um, yeah. That's kind of how I, how I saw it. Um, yeah, but it's interesting. though. It, I, I thought it's a very interesting piece of work. I think it is definitely more reliant on the mood and the visuals and the music as opposed to um, the story. But that's what you're going to get from a Wong Kar Wai movie. And most people, like, when you hear me say that, that sounds like a bad excuse for a bad movie. It's not. I think he does, puts enough texture in the visuals and what he's trying to portray that it kind of, you could you could listen, you could watch the movie without any sort of, any dialogue. And you can get completely um, what he's going for. Yeah. I, th- I think maybe his films um, deserve multiple watches and um, and maybe seeing in the big screen on the cinema with yeah. a like-minded audience as and, well and maybe not having that hype as well will help because i know um <laughs> youtube so videos not... of tarantino telling you why the movie is amazing <laughs> yeah I, I think as well because as we further on this list as we get to the end probably at the end of the year the number five film on this list is in the mood for love which is a film you and i have both seen um, I can't remember what you think about it, Chris. I, I haven't watched In the Mood for Love yet. Have you not? Okay. See, I wasn't blown away by In the Mood for Love. And I'm going to rewatch it, I think, when we get to number five, because I think having mm. lo- lower expectations, potentially, of, of, of the film might lead me to watch it in a different way. So we'll find out later in the year when we get to that one. And maybe one day I'll, I'll revisit Chunking Express as well and and, and that. But I, I definitely want to see more Wong Wokai because I'm just intrigued. By oh, Wong Kar Wai, sorry. I'm just intrigued by um, his filmography and the status it has. And uh, yeah, I mean, no doubt it's was, it was a good looking film. Also, I kind of forgot it was set in 1994 because the visuals of it make it look like a film from the early 2000s. I don't mean that in a bad way. No, just, I get what you mean. Like, like the color grading, the, the kind of uh, digital elements to it, like the way... It's oh, yeah. very jumpy with its action scenes and stuff like that. Just it feels like a very stylized two thousands movie. And maybe that's why people who saw it in ninety four were so excited by it. By it, it was very forward thinking for its time. And I think, like I said, mentioned Tarantino was one of those people from from the Western culture that kind of brought Wong Kar Wai to um, a lot of people's attention. He saw Chongqing Express when he was over in Hong Kong, and he was so taken by it that he, you know, he just helped distribute it. In, yeah. in the West. So um, that's why there's so much legacy behind this movie. Um, I feel like In the Mid for Love is like people kind of agree is his magnum opus movie. Mm. So I'm really looking forward to exploring that. Um, but interested to see why you were as reluctant 
um, perhaps I might feel the same way. So we'll be discussing that in the future. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I think that was interesting. Well. Interesting discussions there on Ant Man, earrings of Madame De Chunking Express. There, there is no other podcast that is talking about these three movies this week. <laughs> I, I think we've, we've, you know, I, I can be proud about that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. That's a good thing, isn't it? Like, it's it's, it's pairing some really strange films together. Um, we are, however, going to take a little break from the BFI sight and sound list. And by little break, me and Chris are still going to continue watching the films, but we're not going to be talking about any of the BFI sight yeah. and sound films next week. We are actually going to be uh, ranking the best picture nominations together. Well, not together. We're both going to have our own ranking list and uh, secret secret yes and then uh oh yeah it's behind the scenes of the podcast right here is that what you understood of the of the project i don't know um i was going to discuss it with you later but we usually keep things secret don't we i think that keeps a bit more exciting and then you know if i hear something outrageous then i can spark anger in the moment and go straight for your jugular Fair enough, fair enough. But yeah, I think that will lead us into a more interesting conversation about the Oscars um, overall. And um, yeah, we only we both only have we both only have the one Best Picture nominee left to see, so we should be ready. Yeah, we both just have to watch Triangle of Sadness before the next recording, uh, which shouldn't be too difficult. So, absolutely, nice one. So yeah, look forward to speaking to you then, Chris. In the meantime, guys, follow us on our Instagram, follow us on our TikTok for all the cringe. And, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, and, uh, yeah, keep, you know, keep sharing us with friends and family, etc., etc. This has been the film angle for this week. I'm Alex. And I'm Chris. Goodbye and good night. See you later.